Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. All right, good morning, everybody. Let's go. Let's go. Good morning. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Whoa. Poor girl. Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you. My name is Mike, and we want to welcome you to Vox. Well done on a rainy, cold, wintry Sunday morning in Southern California. Look at you guys. Here we are. Um, my name is Mike, and uh, um, this is a, a church community named uh, after the Latin word for voice. Uh, we, we're big fans of this Jesus fellow, and uh, as God's voice into our world, uh, we want to show just how beautiful and gracious he is. A uh, couple of things, and we always talk about these things. Number one, if you are new with us this morning, you need to go to voxoc.com and uh, let us know that you were here. You can get some information. You can sign up for a few things we've got coming up. One of those things are things called, what have we been talking about the last couple of weeks? Table fellowships, correct. Table fellowships, that's, that we use that phrase specifically because that's something that Jesus was known for. Jesus was known for sharing meals with all sorts of people uh, from all sorts of religious perspectives. And so table fellowships are real fancy. It's dinner and conversation around dinner. That's all it is. These are not Bible studies. These are not prayer meetings. These are not small groups. This is dinner and conversation around dinner with people you don't know. And uh, we just think there's something beautiful about that. And so we have five or six different locations. Uh, we just opened up a new one because uh, South County people were complaining uh, that there was nothing for them. So we opened up one in Irvine, or as we like to call it around here, Irvana. And uh, so there's one in Irvine. Check that out. There's also one uh, specifically for uh, 18 to 26-year-olds. Uh, and, 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 and that meeting, actually the first meeting for that one is this Thursday in Brea, California. Um, so you go to voxoc.com, please sign up and let us know so that we know how much food to get. Make sense? Also, uh, last week we had a young lady here by the name of Carrie. And um, uh, one of the things that we do as part of responding to what God's doing is that we have these little prayer what do you call them? It's not a prayer wall, a prayer station. Prayer board, nice. Prayer station, perfect. Uh, and, and we invite people to come up and to actually share stuff that's on their heart, uh, things that we can pray for. So last week, Gary had this big um, conversation about you know, swapping out fear for love. And where is it that we need to do that? And, and we've got four pages worth of heavy, heavy, heavy stuff that came in on these boards. Here's what I want you to know. We pray for those, um, but we also want to hear how it's going. So if you're ever courageous enough or ever would be, honor us enough, um, we have an email that's just prayer at voxoc.com. And we would love updates on how you're doing, on how things went, on this particular surgery, on whether or not this reconciliation happened. Uh, that would really help us. Um, and, and even if you never put anything up on the wall and you want something uh, for our team to pray for, you can email that address as well, all right? One last thing. Next Sunday, weather permitting, 
Cinco de Marzo. Okay? Let me show you. Because May is too far away, so why do, why do Cinco de Mayo when we can do Cinco de Marzo? So who knows if this will really happen? Like, the weather is crazy around here. If it's sunny and anywhere north of, like, 65 degrees, what we're going to do is after the second service, we've got, um, uh, we've got some stuff we're going to be doing out on the lawn that is for kids, for adults. Uh, we've got uh, a, the taco guy who's been here before coming back. Uh, we've, we may have a mariachi band. We're still trying to finalize those details. We're dressing David Robles up as a pinata. Um, and uh, so anyway, it's just an opportunity to hang out and get to know people. So that is next Sunday. Sound good? You guys seem overwhelmingly passionate and energetic this morning. So I understand, and I'm thrilled you're here. Um, first of all, before we dive into some singing, um, we always take some questions. And uh, as you can imagine, the, the questions, I, it's so hard to answer some of the questions we get in because literally they're paragraphs long. And they're brilliant questions, but I don't know how to like, summarize them in a sentence. So often what we'll do is we'll just go with questions that seem the most universal or the questions that easily, most easily fit on the screen. So if you have any questions, uh, anything you want to talk about, that's the number. Uh, although we've had people mistakenly, you know, try to text their family members using this number, and we'll always put those up here, um, <laughs> unless it's some. Well, pretty, all right. So, first question, Mike, why don't you tell your story? Well, first of all, um, why don't I? I I, I kind of like letting other people talk. You guys hear enough about me. I mean, someday, that's great. Uh, I always you know, feel like I do too much talking. So I'm always erring on the side of letting someone else do that. But someday, someday, I can tell you're dying to know that. I hear just the affirmation. How do you love in the world full of hate? Is there no love in this world? Well, it sure doesn't seem like it, right? If you want to love people, avoid social media. I mean, that's number one. I don't know what good that does anymore, right? Um, but, but it's a very interesting question. And, and I think that the current climate in our world, if Jesus' followers were to take advantage of it, provides Jesus' followers with one of the clearest, most dramatic opportunities to stand out in our world unlike we've had in generations. And, and what I mean by that is simply this. For those of us who are deeply interested in becoming transformed to be like Jesus, the practices of loving your, your neighbor, loving your enemy, blessing those who persecute you, right? The, the really not practiced teachings of Jesus. Practicing those teachings now, learning how to become somebody who actually loves people who are unlovable and who don't love back, will be the most countercultural thing and picture of what Jesus of Nazareth is up to in the world. And so, for me, this question is, how do you learn how to do that? Oh my goodness, simple. Well, not simple. Pick up Matthew 5, 6, 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and memorize it, and then practice it. 
And if you begin to, and again, this is like, this is called discipleship. This is like, discipleship isn't learning about the Bible. Discipleship is learning to be like Christ. There's a big difference. You're not discipled to the Bible. You're not disciples of the church. You're disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. And the goal of that study is to make you more like him. So for me, this is a failure of discipleship on the part of the American church that our folks do not know, that I don't know, that we don't know how it is to practically, genuinely, from the heart, love people who are not loving in return. So, a couple of thoughts. Next. I hear these messages, and I used to feel so inspired. I have a similar but different story for me. I'm a childhood, a childhood survivor of emotional abuse, from a mentally ill mother, and you carry that around deep. So I used to plead to God as a child to save me from her. I didn't get out until I was 17, then I fell away, angry that I had to suffer alone, all the while being told by Christians to pray harder and to have more faith. Right, I, that's always helpful. You're being abused, make sure you pray more. Once I returned, I'm assuming to the faith, I continue to search for answers in God's word. So I feel that there does need to be a complete change of fear for love. That's what Carrie was talking about last week. But what does that mean? I can be open, like right now, but that childhood pain feels endless. I believe in Christ, I believe. I call myself a Christian, I pray, I read, I research, I do the therapy, I forgive her. I continue that because I know forgiveness is a process, and it's years later, and the pain is still there. God's love is bigger than this pain, but I'm waiting for it to overcome. So what do you say to that? First thing we say is, I can't even imagine what you've had to go through. And I'm sorry that well-meaning people didn't tell you that sometimes praying more and having more faith isn't all that you need to do. Sometimes you need to get out of there, you need to contact authority, sometimes, you know. And I'm also sorry that your picture of God got very polluted as a God who didn't answer till you were 17. I would feel the same way. So it's not surprising you wandered away, the surprise is that you came back. And so we're thankful for that. I guess if I'm reading between the lines of your question, I'm, I'm picking up, and maybe you don't feel this way, but, but I'm picking up a, I should be over this by now thing. And I, I would just say, I don't, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I don't know that that's necessarily true. For those of us who are farther along in the journey, and I'm talking like some of you older folks. Every now and again, I'll hear one of you say, hey, I'm surprised that at this age, I'm still dealing with X, Y, or Z. And I think there's this lie, and I picked it, I learned to identify it when I was in therapy, that I should be over it by now, that can hold us often in bondage. And I don't know that you should be over it by now. Don't know the specifics, can't imagine the specifics, but I don't think that's just something you spend a few years on and it goes away. So my only 
counsel to you would just be to be as honest as you're being. When we talk about being disappointed with God, God gives us so much permission to actually express that to him. That you're a part of this community is absolutely wonderful. I'm thrilled. And I hear a bit of skepticism about the messages that just say, hey, you can just kind of snap a finger and have it be over. That's not true. So um, I want to pray for you. If you're here, I want to pray for you. And I want to pray for loads of us who are still digging through those deep processes. Um, The stuff that came in on the prayer walls last week, I mean, if you just saw it, you'd realize you're not alone. And it's so heavy, and there's so much pain, and so much struggle. And um, I, I just felt a deep sense of not only kinship, with many of you because, you know, I've got all that too. But a deep um, joy in, I I know this is a cheesy thing to say, but a deep joy in knowing that we all share the same table and that for some of you just getting up in the morning, that's victory. And that you show up on a Sunday morning, that's victory. And there's something beautiful about us limping together to a table that reflects God's endless grace, right? So, as he's gonna come out, um, and we're gonna do a bit of singing, but I just wanna pray for us. I felt really heavy all week sitting in some of this stuff, not just my stuff, but as a community of really, really heavy stuff. So, close your eyes if you would. I know God does his best work when our eyes are closed. That's in the Bible. It says that very blatantly. That's why I never pray in the car. Never do it. (laughs) Never. And so, Father, uh, I was just woken up to um, the amount of of sadness and disappointment and struggle and grief um, that that gathers here. And God, I, um, you know, I, I, I deeply desire that it would all just go away, that it would all be healed and everything would be reconciled and everything would be fixed. I yearn for that so much for us. And I also realize um, that that's not always the case. There there are people like this person who have spent years doing the work and live now under the burden of not being finished, having that still hang around. And so Lord Jesus, We want you to lift our eyes up from our own hearts and our wounds and our limps um, to see something bigger, to remind us of the bigger and truer story, to recognize, God, that your grace is sufficient and your power is made perfect when ours is brought to its end. And for some of us, just... Trying to believe that requires such faith. And so God, increase our faith. Increase our faith. To mean the words that we sing, to persevere in intimacy with you when we're disappointed, to have courage to step out in love in a world that's so full of hate. And so Lord Jesus, come. Would your spirit be here? Now minister to broken hearts today. Draw near to the brokenhearted today. We're tired of pretending. 
Thank you that we don't have to pretend and that you know it all already. It's already been factored in. It's been forgiven. So there's no condemnation. Help us to walk in this today as a community together. Amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the big one. You've made it. Hell is over today. All right, you've sat through two months teaching on judgment. So, I want to remind you, this was originally our starting point in December. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We'll do eternal life next week. Um, and, and, and our entryway into this conversation was really contrasting two pictures. You remember these, of course. The standard story that we've been told, which is we live on earth, we face judgment when we die, then our souls spend forever in heaven or hell, depending on the outcome of that judgment. The scripture, though, tells a, a slightly different story, and hell really isn't a main factor in this whole thing. It's about the creation of the heavens and the earth and their unity together and God walking around on the earth with his people. And then there's the, the, the rebellion and the disobedience that characterized our first parents and, and some in the angelic realm so that there is this separation now, this rupture, this fracture between the heavens and the earth that requires now God's action in judgment in order to reconcile heaven and earth together. And the picture we get of our future isn't we're in heaven on wings in streets of gold. It's it, we have resurrected bodies living on a new earth with God coming down out of heaven to dwell among with his people. So the beginning and ending of the story look almost exactly alike. Instead of a garden, though, human civilizations progress, and so it's a city that we live in. We've spent a lot of time... And this issue of judgment, it's probably the most misunderstood part of this puzzle. And so we've been asking several questions. We said, okay, why does God have to judge? And the analogy we used is that of cancer, right? That, that God judges out of love. Why? Because sin and death and evil and darkness have infected God's good world. And that God hates that, in the same way a parent would hate the cancer that eats away at their child. The problem is that you and I are part of <laughs> the problem. We're part of the cancer, so it's not just this nebulous earth that has to be you know, purified and judged. It's our contributing factors to that. And so God judges out of love, and God judges out of a desire to reconcile heaven and earth again. Secondly, we asked, all right, who does God judge? And Jesus' judgment, when he talks about judgment, there are two things that are constant in all of Jesus' teaching. Read it sometime. The word surprise and the word reversal. There's always surprise in Jesus' teaching on judgment. Why? Because there's a reverse. There's something you didn't expect. The people that were sure they were on the inside find themselves on the outside, and the people that we're sure they were on the outside, find themselves on the inside. And the outworking for us, of course, is that in the Bible, God's judgment always starts with the people who are to know him best. And so why do we refrain from judging and assigning and labeling? Well, 
Because we're in the target, we're in the crosshairs before anybody else is. And we talked, I hope this is sounding familiar, we talked about how God judges. And that very often in the scriptures, the judgment of God is built into the sin itself. It's kind of a boomerang, you reap what you sow. It's not like God is up there zapping people. It's that, no, 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 he's built the universe so that sin is its own punishment, as it turns out. And then last week, or two weeks ago, we talked about the where of judgment, and the pictures we get of judgment are exile, banishment, and ultimately a place called Gehenna, which is outside the city. So, so it, it's not God torturing people, it's just God excluding. Okay, now, the question that remains is what happens in exile and outside the city, correct? Hello, does this sound familiar? You need to be a little more peppy. Okay, because 82 slides are about to come at you. All right? This is the most boring teaching you are ever going to sit through. And, and you've sit through some really boring ones, just if you've been here for any length of time. This is by far the worst. All right? Now, there are three views as to what happens outside the city. First view is that ultimately the people outside the city will be brought inside the city and that every last person will be rescued in the end. Don't know how, don't know how long it takes, don't know why, but every person ultimately will be won over by God's love and relentless pursuit of them. So that's called universalism. The traditional view in Christian circles, at least our Christian circles, is something called eternal conscious torment, which has a very catchy name. And it's the idea that those apart from Christ go to hell and are kept alive forever, eternally being tormented. Forever and ever and ever and ever for all eternity. That's the popular view. And there are three big arguments for the popular view. First, the argument goes the Old Testament doesn't have a ton to say uh, about the afterlife. But we know, according to Jewish literature, that in Jesus' day, one of the more popular views, probably the most popular view, was this view, that people would be kind of roasted in flames forever and ever. And that Jesus seems to affirm this view in a couple of places, and then there are two verses in the book of Revelation that seem to uh, hold this view, and so that's why this view has kind of captured our imagination. The third view, though, is the view I'm going to suggest to you and defend this morning, and it's called conditionalism or annihilationism. And it's the view that whoever and whatever cannot be redeemed by God is ultimately put out of existence. This is deeply a minority view among evangelical scholars, okay? I, and I'm shocked that it is. Um, I've been studying this for three months and I am overwhelmed by the biblical evidence for it. So my attempt is going to be to overwhelm you. Now, Vox will never have an official stance, and your job is never to just agree with me, but I hope what good teaching does is it provokes you to wrestle with the community you're in and the scriptures to determine what you think, all right? I'm going to read to you literally a bunch of slides. I'm not doing this to be annoying, although I know it's annoying. I'm doing this to try to overwhelm you in seeing 
the through lines that have often been ignored because the traditional view is so commonly held. Okay? So, arguments number one. Here we go. There are five I want to offer. Now, if you try to write this down, you're insane. Okay? I can email all of this to you with support, some supporting documents. Argument number one. Human beings are not immortal by nature. Only God is immortal. Okay? The Lord God said at the end, Genesis 3, the man, this is after their disobedience, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of and eat and then what? So the Lord God banished him from the garden. What's the implication? That they weren't going to live forever unless they ate of the tree, correct? So by nature, human beings are not immortal. Second verse. First Timothy says this way, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Next which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is what? And then last slide. The end of the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who wash their robes, uh, an image for faith in Christ, that they may have the right to the what? The tree of life. And may go through the gates of the city. So, whether, whether that's a literal tree of life or, I mean, I, I don't have any idea how it works, but the image is that only God is immortal. Human beings are not, okay? Hellenistic philosophy, specifically Platonism, has kind of uh, argued that, no, no, the, uh, the soul is eternal by nature. But that's not what's taught in the scriptures. What's taught in the scriptures is that only God is eternal by nature. Human beings are not eternal by nature, okay? So that's argument one. Wedded together with argument two, the wages and the consequences of sin, therefore, are death. Here comes a barrage. The Lord commanded, Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly... Next, Romans 1, although they... Speaking of the non-Jewish world, know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve. Next. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and what? Death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. What's the, what, what's the outcome of sinning? Dying. Why? Because sin separates you from the God of life. Next. The very famous one, the wages... The consequences, the deserved payment of sin is death. But what's the gift? It's eternal life. So do you see the contrast? If we're not immortal by nature, we only become immortal by what? Gift. By grace. Next. James says, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to? Next. Why did Jesus have to die? So he could be free from sin, yes, but why did he die? Yeah, what, 
What's the wages of sin? Death. So why did Jesus die? He was paying death, the penalty for sin, right? So now we're going to get into a great conversation about why he died the way that he did. That is very interesting. But the fact that he died is just a natural outworking of the fact that the consequences for sin is death. So verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. He died. Next. Oh, so much good stuff. Then the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is? Right. Interesting. Next. Then you get this crazy picture in Revelation about the lake of fire. And that's where everyone thinks, okay, you're put in the lake of fire and you're tortured there forever. But notice what John calls the lake of fire. He says, then death and Hades, the realm of the dead, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the what? Is the what? The second death. What's the first death? The normal death that we're all sitting under, right? The second death is evidently the judgment then. Now, I love your, either I'm bored, this is interesting, or I'm confused, all right? Those are the three faces I'm looking at right now. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of, right, have you ever wondered about the Lamb's book of life? Well, it's simple. It's an image taken from ancient cities where they would take a census of all living citizens. So if your name was in the book of life, it just meant you were alive. If your name was not written in the book of life, it meant you were dead. I mean, it's kind of just straightforward. So, argument number one, we're not by nature immortal. Argument number two, our sin deserves death. Argument number three, eternal life is a gift to only those who are united with Christ. Now, do you see the implication? What do other people receive? Not that gift. And if they're not mortal by nature, immortal by nature, and the wages of sin is death, what happens to them? They die, the second death. Next, so man, this is gonna be obnoxious. You're like, it already is obnoxious. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, which is transformation, and the result is eternal life. See, eternal life, I mean, it's just, it's what we don't have by nature, but we now receive by grace. Wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Next. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then, oh, oh, John 3, 16. No one takes this verse for what it says. Because it clearly says that whoever believes in him should not perish. You know what the word perish means there? It means to be destroyed. But have what? Eternal life. Perish here does not mean tortured forever. Next. Whoever believes in the Son has. Whoever rejects the Son will not see. Next. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word believes in him who sent me has. He will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Next. Do you see, do you see what's being contrasted in all these? Death and life. Not life and life. 
life and death. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life that they will never perish. Next. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Next. I mean, there are hundreds of these. And I'm showing you every one of them. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in, that grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. Next. But for that very reason, Paul says, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, see, people ask me, why do you call yourself the worst of sinners? Well, Paul does. And he was not the worst, I'm the worst. Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Next. Grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed and brought and immortality. Things we didn't have otherwise. Next. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap next and this is the testimony god has given us and this life is in his son whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of god does not have right do you see see the traditional view says human souls are indestructible and so they have to go somewhere They go into the lake of fire where they're never consumed or burned up and they just sit in there being tortured forever. This view says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Eternal life is only given to those in Christ. Everyone else doesn't have eternal life, which means they have what? Eternal death. And it's not an eternal process of dying. It's once you're dead, you're dead for eternity. That's the picture. All right, are you out there? Man, I see some sleepy heads. It's going to get worse. I told you. Argument number four. The Old Testament has a lot to say about the afterlife. Notice, here's one, uh, here's one scholar. Next. The Old Testament uses, nope, go back one. There you go. Thanks, Bob. The Old Testament uses about 50 different Hebrew words to describe total destruction and about 70 figures of speech. Without exception, they portray destruction, extinction, or extermination. Not one word or image remotely suggests people are tortured eternally. Next. So, for instance, the unrepentant will become like a vessel broken to pieces, ashes trod underfoot, smoke that vanishes, chaff carried away by the wind, a slug that melts, a straw that is burned, thorns and stubble in the fire, that wax that melts, or a dream that vanishes. Next. Now, here's an interesting thing. There were two judgments in the Old Testament that became examples that New Testament writers used to talk about what will happen at the final judgment. Okay, this is really important. One of those is Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire and brimstone, interestingly enough. And the text says the smoke rose after the city had been destroyed. Okay? Look at what Peter does with this image. Next. If God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, 
and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's interesting. So these aren't just random things, they were pictures. Next. Oh, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and, their, and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer punishment of... Okay, now, was the fire on Sodom and Gomorrah eternal? No. What was eternal? The consequences of the fire. Correct? So... We're going to read about, see, when you read about um, like eternal destruction in 1 Thessalonians, that doesn't mean you are eternally in the process of being destroyed. It means the destruction that happens has an eternal result. Do you see the difference? Now, if you're wondering why we're doing this, just wait, there's a point coming. Next. Prophets provided images of judgment. Fire and storm, tempest and darkness, wrath and corpses and worms. And they have to do with destruction. I know, it's so beautiful. Next. For those who are, so this is an example. Do you need an example from the book of Psalms? Or do you get, do you, have you got my point? Okay, move. Skip it, Bob. Skip. There you go. Argument number five. All right, here's the, here's the big one. We're almost done in about 15 minutes. Argument number five, New Testament images for the final judgment. Boom. Consumed by fire. Fire in the Old Testament world never kept anything alive. It was used solely for the purposes of destroying things. All right? Never. It was always, it, always for the purposes of consuming something. So we just read the Jew verse. They serve as an example of those who suffer punishment of eternal fire. Next. Hebrews, the land that produces thorns and thistles and is worthless, is in danger of being cursed. It will end, in the end, it will be burned. These are all images for judgment. You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and next. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into thee. Next. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the, so it will be at the end of the age. Next. And anyone who says you fool be in danger of the fire of? Next. The, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, right? So fire is this constant image, but fire was never an image of something that kept things alive. Fire was always an image of something that consumed something else. Second image. So destruction. Enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Next. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in. Yeah, so hell is the place where body and soul are destroyed. That's interesting. Next. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Next. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and... So save and destroy are contrasted here. Interesting. Next. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come, up then, come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Next. 
Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be so saved and destroyed held as uh, alternatives. Next. Later in Philippians, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, which hits a little close to home. And their glory is in their shame. Next. Do you, I mean, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment. And the what? I mean, do you, do you see kind of how overwhelming this is? Hello? Now, there, there are arguments to everything I'm saying. Arguments about, well, the word destroy can also mean like to ruin, and, and, but ruin for its intended purpose. And there, there are counters to all of this. I just want you to know that. And there are counters to those counters, and it's beautiful. But because the traditional view has so much airtime in our world, I, I just wanted to like bore you to tears and overwhelm you with Look at how prevalent this is said. And look at how often we just skip by this stuff and we read the traditional view into it where that it's not taught. Next. So destruction. Yep, next. Perish. Here's another, here's another image. So John 3.16, of course, next. Yeah, the word perish in John 3.16 means to destroy or to cause the destruction of persons, objects, or institutions. To ruin to destroy or destruction. Next, another example, 2 Corinthians 2. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are so saved and perishing are alternatives. To the one, we are the aroma that brings death. To the other, the aroma that brings... Next. Another image, obviously the image of death. We've already looked at that. Next. Another image, image of separation from God. We looked at that last week. The banishment, the outside the city of the gospel. Okay, almost done. Next slide. Now, I have one minute left of sermon time. We're going to go a little over. There are four passages that have to be responded to when we're having this conversation. Several of those are in Revelation, and I'm going to save that for a podcast we're going to do in two weeks, when we just do a recap on hell, okay? And I'm just going to respond to those passages specifically. One of, one of the questions, though, next, is about verses like this at the end of Matthew. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Doesn't that sound like they're being punished eternally, correct? The issue is, Jesus never specifies the nature of the punishment or of the life here, correct? And secondly, we've already seen that eternal punishment doesn't necessarily mean punished for an eternity, it just could be the punishment lasts an eternity. Make sense? Like, the same thing next uh, with 2 Thessalonians. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. Does that mean you are forever being in the process of being destroyed or is the destruction that happens everlasting? And then we point back to the book of James, or Jude, excuse me, where it says, no, no, no. Sodom and Gomorrah serve an ex as an example of those who suffer punishment of 
eternal fire, but what was eternal about the fire? It wasn't that the fire lasted for an eternity, it was that the fire had eternal consequences. So there are six of these verses that have eternal destruction, eternal salvation, eternal punishment. Four of those, in four of those six, it's clearly referring to the outcome and not to the process. So there's no reason to take the other two and assume that what's being spoken of is God perpetually in the process of destroying somebody. Not when you have all of this other evidence that suggests otherwise. And then lastly, and thankfully, what about Father Abraham? What about the man in Luke 16 where the rich man goes to Hades and from Hades he cries up to Father Abraham and his servant Lazarus or the poor man that was Lazarus is now up in Abraham's bosom which is a very Jewish way to say this. It says, Father Abraham, cries the man in torment, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. So people will say, hey, hey, look at that. Right? There's an example of somebody in heaven and somebody in hell and you can't, and one's in agony and one's in awesome and they can see each other. Now what's the problem with that argument? First, this is a parable. Second, if you're going to take it as a map of the afterlife, Hades is just the realm of the dead. It's not hell. And Abraham's bosom, right, that's a very Jewish way of talking about life right after death, not the final judgment. So even if you take this as a map of afterlife, it's only talking about what happens after you die, not what happens at the final judgment. And then thirdly, when you read the other rabbinical literature of the day, you realize, oh, Jesus was just using common stories. That, this, that his Jewish audience would not have taken this as a roadmap for the afterlife. It, would just, it was just playing on very common understandings. So I don't, think that's a, I don't think we can take theology about afterlife from a parable like this. Now, lastly, argument number six, biggest and most important one. Does God keeping people alive, remember, they're not, they're not eternal by nature, okay? So God, if he's going to allow people to be tormented forever, has to continually give them the gift of life. And he's doing that so that they are consciously tormented in hell. And we're told the reason they're eternally tormented is because they have offended the most majestic, beautiful holy being in the history of the world, in the history of anything, and that even a small sin in 70 years of life is worthy of punishment for eternity without end. The biggest argument I have against the traditional view is, is that, revealed, is that view revealed in the heart of Jesus? Not even remotely. There are people who actually say that God has pre-selected those who go to heaven and those who go to hell so that the people who are going to hell have no choice about their going to hell and that God will keep them alive forever so that he will be glorified. Does that sound like the heart of God revealed in Jesus? Not even remotely. When Jesus announced judgment on the city of Jerusalem, what was he doing when he did it? What was he doing? You remember? He was sobbing 
Weep doesn't even, weep doesn't even begin to cover it. Like gut-wrenching. Goodbye, young lady. We're eternally grateful. It will be online, yes. Bless your heart. Oh, don't, no, oh, please. I think there are many people that want to join you. You're just the first courageous one. So the heart of God is revealed in scriptures like this. As surely as the Lord, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Next. Right? In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should perish. Next. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Next. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Next. God did this. It's this beautiful speech. So that people would seek God and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God is a missionary. God's not up there pre-selecting. See, there's number two. Bless you. Floodgates are open now. <laughs> so for me, brothers and sisters, this, this is why this matters. If you believe that God had pre-selected people for heaven and hell, that they were elected or predestined, that there was nothing these people could do about it, and that literally billions and billions of human persons made in God, God's image, have been made for the express purpose of being tormented forever in fire. What kind of God, what kind of picture of God do you have? If you believe that God grieves over the evil that we do to each other, that we do to ourselves, and that is done to us, if you believe that God's plan is to pull out of human history any single human person with the slightest degree of openness to him, he will find them and rescue them and redeem them. And that those he cannot win over, he will simply not give the gift of eternal life to, which means they have eternal death. What kind of God is that? It's a radically different picture. For far too long, People have said this to me. What, why would we then go if we can't use hell to scare people into faith? Right? And I'm like, really? That's our best argument for following Jesus? Is this better than the other place? That's the thing we say to our kids? Hey, you don't want to burn in hell, pray a prayer? That is nothing like Jesus. That is nothing like the movement he inaugurated. That is nothing like the preaching of the early church. The number of people who have been manipulated by this in the name of witnessing, we've been, we've been held in bondage far too long to a view of God that gives God, that makes God look like the accuser, that make, makes God look like the enemy. And it's just not true. It's just not true. I don't imagine God zapping, I imagine God weeping 
over the image bearers. And I don't know if there's a second chance or not. I have, I have the foggiest idea. I just am firmly convinced more than ever that following Jesus now is the best way to live human life. I don't need heaven or hell to make that argument. Right? And so my brothers and my sisters, is there a fearful judgment coming? Yes. Look at how much humanity fights death, is terrified by death, hides death, right? It, it exists as a sentence over every human endeavor. We hate it, but the gift of God is life. If you are standing outside the kingdom of God, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you to come to this Jesus and open your heart to him. You do not have to stay outside the city. You can have the thing you want. Peace, relationship with your creator, life eternal that is only interrupted but actually transformed for the better when we mortally die. And so is God's judgment a fearful thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. We resist it every day in every way. Human life rebels against death. And the invitation of God is you don't have to live under that sentence. You just don't have to. And that starts now. Eternal life, interestingly, we'll see next week, is a quality of life, not just life forever. And that invitation is extended now. So one of the ways we say yes every week is what do we do? We come to the table. We take the bread and the cup, and we do it as an act of grace, saying yes, God, yes, God, yes, I open myself to you. I surrender myself to you. I pledge allegiance to you. I say yes to the gift you've given. I claim by grace what I could not have by nature. I freely limp up here acknowledging that it's only because of your mercy that I'm worthy. That's why everyone's welcome. No one, no one's got to get cleaned up first. If that were true, tables would be empty. Only Jesus could eat. So like we do, we're going to open up the tables in just a moment. The gluten-free folks are over there, and we love them. They get the very good bread. Everyone else gets the substandard, full-bodied bread. We'll have people at every station handing out the elements. Do we have people at every station, Guapo? Perfect. All right, just checking. I knew we were... A little short today. If you need me, I'm, I'm available. I'm a good plate holder. Um, and they will look at you and say, this is the body given for you, and this is the blood shed for you. And we take and we dip and we eat. For those of you that are still limping in here, and it's the majority by the sound of it, continually let us know how we can pray. We really do take it seriously. We're honored to do it. If you want someone to pray for you now, we'll, we'll have a couple of people over in this little alcove over here. Because sometimes just to hear the words prayed over you is so important. If you want to participate in giving, we always are uh, wanting to be people conformed into generosity and hospitality. And so for those of you that worship that way, participation boxes around the doors. But lastly, and most importantly, my prayer today, I felt so heavy today, I could hardly sleep last night. I don't know why, I just felt, I don't know if it was the prayer requests or my own junk. 
I felt so heavy. And um, I, I feel like we live in fear of the God that we're supposed to love. And I don't know how you learn to love a God when the threat of hell is used to bring you into the faith to begin with. And so is hell real? Yep. Is outside the city real? Yep. The biblical pictures of that moment when you realize, just I cannot even imagine. But what we're fighting for is how beautiful Jesus is, how beautiful God is. And we want to be faithful above all to the text. So if you only had the Bible, what conclusion would you come to about what God is like? Let me pray, and then we'll take this supper together. Lord, um, we don't want to get this wrong. Um, obviously, we want, we have a self-interested perspective on wanting mercy over judgment. But I, I do pray, God, that you would, um, as Hebrews says, you would fix our eyes upon Jesus and that you would wage war against the, the images we have of him that are ugly and that are sub-biblical and that are anti-Christ so that we might become people so compelled by his beauty, so compelled by his majesty that there's, there, there is no fear. There's just trust and there's faith and there's joy and there's worship. And so God, would you use the table, would you use our worship, would you use the mess of our lives to put that on display? We love you and we bless you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Man. We did some work today, kids. Let's stand together as we go. Oh, sorry, you were, on, you were halfway down. Um. So, a couple things, voxoc.com, sign up for table fellowships if you have not already. Next week, weather permitting, fiesta. It'll be glorious. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you, and may he, in these days, give you peace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go in grace. Say hello to somebody as you leave. Goodbye. Cue the music. See you later. There we go. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.